I would like to discuss from Psalm 51 a, sub a subject that I have entitled Repentance and Forgiveness in the Church. A Biblical Guide Towards Restoration. A Biblical Guide Towards Restoration. Repentance and Forgiveness in the Church. A Biblical Guide Towards Restoration. In the study of the Psalms, as poetic literature, Psalm 51 is marked as one of those Psalms out of seven that are considered under the title, a group title, Penitential Psalms or Psalms of Com Confession. The other Six are Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. So in the liturgy of the church, or God's people, in the Old Testament, in the early days, as well as in the New Testament, in the early liturgy of the church, this group of psalms would be utilized during seasons when the church was observing um, these important themes of, of um, repentance and, and, and forgiveness. And these are very important themes for the church today. Unfortunately, themes that we have not handled as well as we ought to. And sometimes we treat them so superficially that we are unable to get to a place where we can genuinely gather momentum as a church from moments that we spend before the Lord in true and genuine repentance and when we can actually practice the virtue and power of forgiveness, which God... This is my definition, not from any book. It's my definition. The word penitence means the following, three things. Number one, it means a sense of deep sorrow. Number two, the word penitence also means a humble realization of one's wrongdoing. Number three, the word penitence suggests a sense of brokenness. So a sense of deep sorrow, sense of humble realization of one's wrongdoing, one's wrongdoing. Thirdly, a sense of brokenness. So it's like in verse 17 of this very psalm, which says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh God, will not despise. Again, very strong, big Theological term used there, contrite. When you talk about contrition, you're talking about brokenness. That's in the New International Version. The New Living Translation says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. That's the New Living Translation. Very powerful expressions. So sometimes, I need to mention to us, that sometimes believers struggle with dealing decisively with sin. And because sin is a very difficult and sometimes emotive issue in the church, we do not deal with it sometimes in the fashion, in the nature, and with the level of exhaustiveness that God desires. And because of how that is, individuals who are either found in cases of sin will themselves fail to genuinely get to a place of real repentance because of just the superficial handling that we, 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 we seem to place on, on sin matters. But at the same time, sometimes the church as a family 
will not get to the place of really dealing with sin the way God would have it dealt with. Because we, we, we are either unsure of what the rest of the church will feel, we're unsure about which group in the church will think we have done this because of that and the other. And so, so many things subsist. And that scenario, I can tell you as a pastor, we have watched in our pastorate, we have watched this for so many years. And unless we take time, beloved, to actually teach you and teach the church, we will allow this thing to remain anemic in the handling of church matters, and the kingdom will lose ground. So we're not going there. What we will do instead is handle these things squarely from a biblical uh, perspective so that the kingdom can truly advance. Hallelujah. And so this is what I feel led to do today, to guide us, to teach us as a church, and to help the body of Christ. This teaching will be available online before too long. And it should be available for many in the body of Christ to utilize. So because of the scenario I described, it makes it difficult for individuals to genuinely attain true repentance. As a result, one may go into a life of compromise, which of course is not pleasing to God. And sometimes the body of Christ also may assume that same uh, posture of compromise, trying to keep everybody happy uh, so that it doesn't appear like we're being too hard or too harsh and so on. When we're dealing with sin in the way the Bible wants us to handle it, it's not harshness. It's just being thorough as God would have us be. Hallelujah. If I may draw our attention to a recent study that we've been doing on Wednesdays in our Bible studies, we've been looking at the church at Laodicea. If you read Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, the church there was reminded to deal with the problem of lukewarmness. And lukewarmness is really at the center of the problem of compromise which the church has to deal with from time to time. And in um, verse 15, leading on to 16, the Lord told the church at Laodicea, I know your works or your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. That's in the King James Version. And in our Bible study, we were observing the fact that the Lord's concern, which really amounted to a distest, a really bad test in the mouth, the Lord's concern for the church at Laodicea was that they were in a compromised state. They were allowing lifestyles of compromise. There was a lack of zeal for the righteousness of the Lord. If you read Romans chapter 12, verse 11, we are told there, do not flag in zeal. Do not let your zeal slacken, so to say, or be pulled back. We're supposed to keep that zeal alive. It's, it's the spiritual fervor, the spiritual fervency. It's, it's the sound that you would hear if um, you are sitting in a restaurant where they're serving you a sizzler. A sizzler is that piece of, or let's, say, let's talk about uh, beef, a choice piece of beef. When they're serving you a sizzler, they will have taken it off from the pan or from wherever they were making it, placed it on, a, on, on, uh, on something that is already a hot plate, and they bring it to you, it's sizzling. It's the meat is coming and being brought to you. It's sizzling. Speaking of the fact that it's still hot, and that's just the style in a restaurant. The spiritual fervor in life, in spiritual life, is about making sure that your life is constantly sizzling and causing you to know that spiritual appetite is at its best. Somebody shout hallelujah. It's at its best. It's not set aside. You're hot, so to say. Now, the church at Laodicea 
was told they were neither hot nor cold. They were not being, being given an option to choose whether it would be hot or to be cold, and that to be cold would be okay, not at all. But the two terms together, hot nor cold, were meant to describe the state of lukewarmness, the state of compromise. And Dr. Johnson, one commentator of the word, indicated and said, and I caught, it, that this may also refer to the fact that the hot medicinal water of a nearby city of Heropolis um, was what was in reference. And he says further, and I quote, the church in Laodicea supplied neither healing for the spiritually sick nor refreshment for the spiritually, uh, spiritually weary. And quote. And my reading of that is that they were complacent, they were self-satisfied, and um, they were indifferent. Those are the descriptions of a state of, of compromise in a believer's life. And you don't want that. The point I make is that as a church, because of how we tend to handle either in, inadequately or inappropriately the issues of sin, we occasion, we fuel this atmosphere of indifference, compromise, and um, complacency. And so, sometimes in the church you see little groups when there is a matter of sin, little groups, and there is rumor, and there is talk, and in these days of social media, in particular groups, there's code names for people who you are discussing, and all kinds of things go on. And I must tell you, as a pastor, it makes handling sons and daughters in the church who may be found in circumstances of sin, very difficult. I'm being very transparent. And the church needs to know that. For the pastor, it makes the handling of those matters of sin in the church extremely difficult. Because we're, we're forced to have to see whether we need to balance interests. But whose interests? There's only one interest we must balance the interest of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when the interest of the Lord is balanced, the interest of the church is in place. The interests of God's children are in place. Somebody shout hallelujah. So I take time today to lead us through some guidance from the Bible. Because as a church, we're not different in facing what the church in the New Testament and God's people in the Old Testament faced. So I'm happy to give a biblical guideline, which I believe is necessary, which will help us to realign ourselves as the body of Christ in this regard. So we begin to look at that guideline from Psalm 51, which provides a very powerful entry point for us. And the following is what we find in Psalm 51. And we know this is a Psalm of David, indisputable. A Psalm of David, specifically written in context of one who experienced a very difficult circumstance of sin in his life as a godly person and needed to deal with it personally. And all of us must learn from this. Because nobody here is immune. You hear that? Nobody here is immune. The preacher inclusive. None of us are immune. So there has to be a sense of, of uh, soberness with which we come to these matters. And once we hold this that I'm about to share into perspective, when we put it into proper perspective, we become channels of healing. We become channels of healing for the body of Christ and channels of healing for the nations. David was a highly visible individual. He was a king, a very influential one for that matter, with great successes within his history of leadership. But David, as a man at almost a pinnacle of leadership, 
like any godly person, can encounter difficulty. He sinned. And we all know that story when we read the Old Testament and how the prophet Nathan went before him and gave a narrative, the story of the Ewe Lamb. And as David was responding, Nathan prophetically said, thou art the man. And as soon as that scene was pointed out and David realized what had gone on, in his process of dealing personally with that sin, Psalm 51 was born. And it's a psalm that I know we've got songs composed from and so on, but a psalm that we find as a church have, have trivialized greatly because we've not fully understood where David's heart was. And today we have the opportunity to explore some of that. So step number one in handling these cases of repentance and the cases requiring repentance and forgiveness in the church, as we look at how we can be guided towards um, restoration, is that humility before God is the foundation. Humility before God is the foundation. Take note, I have had to qualify it before God because that's the primary place. Sin is such a, a serious issue in anyone's life. It's both private, but it has those public implications as well. And because of the private nature of sin and then the, the public aspect that requires you to begin to wonder how you're being viewed or how you will act, it is necessary that the entry point becomes humility before God as a key foundation. Here's how David presents it. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, one, according to your great compassion, two, and he goes on to say, uh, well, one actually is mercy, two is unfailing love, three is great compassion. I want you to notice, in case you've never done so, that David actually picks on three things that are synonyms. Same words, meaning the same thing. Similar words, rather, meaning the same thing. First he says, have mercy. He says, according to your unfailing love. And he says, according to your great compassion. If you're reading the word in the Hebrews, language, you will actually see that these words that have been picked on are synonyms. Words that mean the very same thing. Different words, but meaning the very same thing. So they are pre presented in sets of three. And we refer to them as triads. And that's deep. When we discuss mercy in the church, we say, God in his mercy did not give us what we deserved. Because as sinners, we deserved to pay the penalty we deserved. To go the very way that Jesus went, to be crucified, to pay the penalty for sin. But we were incapable of doing that. So in his grace, so in his mercy, God did not give us what we deserved, which was immediate punishment and penalty. In his grace, God turned to us and gave us what we didn't deserve. That's why we call grace the unmerited favor. We have received favor. We didn't merit it. We didn't work for it. But God gave it to us. But in his mercy, he withheld from us what he should rightly have given us. He should have punished us instantaneously for our sin. For the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. That's God's mercy. 
When he went and hung on that cross, and it should have been you and me hanging there. That's the mercy of the Lord. So in his mercy, he didn't give us what we deserved. He actually withheld that from us. And the psalmist has that in mind when he's dealing with his sin. He's saying, have mercy, oh God, have mercy. He understood that if God was to leave this thing just at the place of sin, he deserved to be punished. And you see, if we in the church understood sin from that angle, it, should, it can't be something that we play around and laugh around. When we see someone sinning, then we have code names and we are chatting in chat groups and laughing and laughing and saying, I knew, I knew, I knew. Isn't that I knew it. You knew what? Is the church hearing the message of Jesus? I'm speaking to you from years, many years of pastoring. I've watched this in small churches. I've watched it in large churches. And it is not right. So it begins with you as an individual. Where when we're dealing with sin, we understand there must be humility. And the psalmist, therefore, repeats three times. And three, as you know, is a, is a very special number in the word. Three times he discusses mercy. He discusses the uh, unfailing love of the Lord and discusses the great compassion, referring to the same thing in that triad, mercy, unfailing love, compassion. He's really reflecting on the fact that this is what God has done. When God sees you and I humble before him, his mercy enables us to have a place where we can kneel before him and say in our hearts, Lord, have mercy. And you know, many times the pastor, and I watch people who sometimes don't understand processes in the church and sometimes they, they push division by spreading bad rumors about brethren in the church, about leaders and so on. Those things happen in the church. And don't think that we don't know. We, we, over time, many times when things are happening like that in the church, many of you know and you're just thinking, eventually we get to know. And when we know and we hear, I tell you how we pray. Normally, we go before the Lord. And if we know an individual that's really not behaving properly, we say, Lord, have mercy. That's how we pray. That's how God puts back love into our hearts so that even when we know that you're misbehaving, we still love you. That's the heart, the pastoral heart of God. That's, what, that's the heart that God puts in shepherds. If we had to treat everybody according to what we know, we would break the church. Because some things we hear about may just be rumor. Some things we hear about are actually real. And we begin to pray. And we pray so God can give us a heart. And that's the heart the entire church needs to have. When there is sin going on and where brothers who are erring or something has gone wrong in their lives, the entire church must take on a pastoral heart. A pastoral heart of being there to care, to love, to tend, to bring back rather than push away. Somebody shout hallelujah. And when you have that desire of coming humbly before the Lord and a heart of mercy, this is how you pray. You know, people who tend to be very harsh with others are not real. They're not real. Now I can tell you they're not real because that harshness sometimes is trying to make up for something that is actually deficient. You have to understand what the all-powerful God has done with all the power he has. How does God use power? God uses power by calling those who err against him to come to him. Because if he had to use that power, we'd all be gone. Have mercy! God is all-powerful. And this all-powerful God has room in his heart for erring sinners. He has room in his heart for erring sinners. He doesn't let the punishment all draw down upon them at that very moment. But he is willing, willing and open, giving room to the sinner to return. And David understood this. So what I've observed in the church is that because of our lack of understanding of this, we are ruthless with one another. Somebody makes one little mistake, we are so ruthless. Sometimes, you know, the principle of an army is that the army 
takes care of its wounded. You don't kill your wounded. You leave no one behind. That's the principle of the military. That is why when, when they're in the platoon is fighting and one of their colleagues is wounded, they pick them up. They are going ahead and either we, whether retreating or not, they, they are going ahead. And if they are having to decamp and move to another area of strategy, they carry their wounded. Sometimes in the church, instead of carrying our wounded brothers and sisters, we kill them. We do that through lots, lots, lots of rumor mongering. Lots of it. And it must stop in the name of Jesus. It must stop. Is the church hearing the message of Jesus? It must stop. It doesn't help the church. But it's revealing where our hearts are. It's revealing the fact that we don't understand the full implications of sin. Sin is a separation from God. Isaiah 59. His hand is not short that it cannot save. No, his ear that it cannot hear. But your sins and your iniquities have separated, hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Because sin separates. The moment we encounter it, we must come humbly before God and say, have mercy, have mercy. We understand the depth, the depth of that. God will respond to us. Somebody shout hallelujah. To show you the depth of David's understanding of this issue of sin, not only does he use the triad referring to God's mercy, his unfailing love and compassion in those three forms, there's another set of synonyms he uses. Three words referring to the same thing. In the second part there, he says, after he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, that's one, wash away my iniquity, that's two, and cleanse me from my sin. So three times again, another triad there, where he uses the term transgression, iniquity, sin. Now we could teach uh, several uh, lessons from, from there. That's not the essence of what I want to do today. just want to show you that David, with such humility understood the, the greatness of God's mercy, compassion, and failing love and compassion. He also understood the wretchedness of transgression and iniquity and sin. Another triad there. Three words referring to the very same thing. A falling away and a failing to meet God's standard. May the church grant us that humility. May the Lord grant us that humility today. I said, may the Lord grant us that humility today. It's a foundation. And beloved, if as a church, we understood sin in this fashion and understood how God treats it. During the Easter season, I preached a message here teaching a little bit about the, um, the atonement and what God has achieved for us. You need to go back to that and pick up the message. And I indicated just, again, the seriousness and the extent of what Jesus has achieved. He, in his own body, bore our infirmities and our pain. And that talks about, that includes how he atoned, not just for our sin, but also made provision for our physical healing. But take note that this physical healing can't even be thought about until we first talk about spiritual healing. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus, in his own body, bore our infirmities and our sin. That we should henceforth no longer live unto ourselves, but unto Christ, by whose stripes we were healed. Hallelujah. Peter also understood the depth of that transgression, iniquity, and sin. And if spiritual healing is possible, then physical healing is guaranteed. Because the spiritual is a picture of the physical. Somebody shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so that's the depth again of Isaiah 53. In this, the... the, the Prophet in Isaiah comes, prophet, prophet Isaiah comes out and says, who has believed our report? 
to whom has the arm of the Lord been made bare? It's to us. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by whose wounds we have been healed. That's the New International Version picking up from Isaiah and quoted now in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. So, humility. Is this making sense to someone here today? Let's talk about our second principle quickly that helps us to really channel repentance and forgiveness in the right way in our individual lives and for the good of the body since we're talking about this as in the church. Verse number three. For I know my transgressions. So he uses that term transgressions. If I was to do uh, teaching specifically focused on sin, I would have taken you a little deeper into uh, differentiating uh, the focuses and the emphasis on those three words, but that's not for now. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. The second thing here is honesty. And my statement is that honesty restores alignment. Now, many of us drive. If you've ever driven a car that is out of alignment or seen a car that is out of alignment, if you're actually driving a car that's out of alignment, that's needing alignment, wheel alignment as they call it, it, it can be one of the most uncomfortable experiences. You almost feel as if you need to be driving this way, but the car seems like it's, it's going this way. You want to drive straight, but... And normally, if you let go of the steering and the car is out of alignment, you notice that it will pull to one of either sides wherever the off uh, angle is, is gravest. So, if you want to be consistent with doing what you're required to do, you go to a place where they can check that alignment and work on the axles down there and they will measure, they will test again and then sometimes you'll even do uh, the wheel alignment and you'll do wheel balancing because there's also something about how the tire eventually hits on the road and depending on how um, spaces are created around the rims. It's a very delicate arrangement. I know that sometimes I've actually seen cars, you can actually see the, the chassis of this car is not okay. Have you seen cars like that? The car is moving like almost. <laughs> Something is wrong with the chassis. Eh? Is that like, whose car? Uh. Crab <laughs> uh. eh? version. <laughs> um, but you know when you think about it imagine a spiritual life where your spiritual chassis so to say is bent how do you see things how do things appear to you that's the reason why we can't afford that as a church you want to be in alignment all the time and that alignment is with all scripture is profitable all scripture, rather, is, is uh, inspired or God-breathed. And it is profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, and so on. That's what Paul said to Timothy. That the man of God may be furnished, thoroughly furnished, and prepared for all good works. Keeps us in alignment. So I want you to see the personalization that um, is uh, evidenced by the psalmist here. It won't be very long, but very important. He says, for I know. Hello? That's taking responsibility. For I know. And that is what we need, beloved. From time to time, don't just look at someone else and what they've heard and you begin to talk about them and you begin to say, I knew. And no, 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 no. Think about yourself. So take responsibility. That personalization. When... Nathan said, thou art the man. This is where David found himself. He says, for I know my transgression. The human approach is that you're always magnifying the errors of others more than your own. And that's a problem. That's sin in itself. You're always thinking that someone is worse than you. 
If you think you've done wrong, I'm, I'm, me, I'm better, but that one is worse. No. Today, let's not, let's, not, let's, not, let's not talk about that one. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about ourselves. Personalization. Taking responsibility. And beloved, the more we do this, the more compassionate we will be. That, this here requires the heart of a mother. The mother is the best portrayal. How mothers can sternly deal with a son or a daughter. And they can whack, 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 whack. And then pick up that little baby and put her on the breast with loving care. The tender loving care of a mother. That represents the heart of compassion. A heart that takes responsibility. You deal with something and you're able to take someone in. But the best way to take each other's in is when you and I take responsibility of our own wrongs. If we personalize this walk and make sure that we are checking ourselves constantly, I assure you, you will put on a good heart and a heart that understands and is more compassionate with others. Hallelujah. Let me make it plain. When that is lacking amongst God's people, bitterness rises. Um backbiting, rumor mongering become the natural result of our humanness when we are not taking responsibility of our own actions. So I want us to know that, beloved, whenever there are too many rumors in your environment, even in a nation, when a nation is bickering and bickering, it is clear indication that people are not taking personal responsibilities of responsibility of their own issues. So there's blame shifting. And sometimes the things they're pointing at may be true. But if we lessen blame shift, the thing that lessens blame shifting is when you as an individual can say, what can I do about this? What is my role? Your attitude changes. I may that be your portion in Jesus' name. And David says, my sin, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. I want to go to the third one shortly and we'll be wrapping things up. But before I do, I must take you and I to Psalm 32 for us to see a little more of this. Psalm 32 is another one of the penitential Psalms. Remember, there are seven of them. So from verse one, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Somebody shout hallelujah. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. To achieve this, beloved, one has to take responsibility. Because when you don't take responsibility, you're not true to yourself. So even when people ask you about something, you'll sugarcoat it because you want them to have a better picture of you. And so in that sense, you can't really deal with sin in your life. But when there's that honesty, and you simply lay it out and say, you know what? I don't know what happened, but I blew it here. I don't know what happened. And so it becomes part of the exploration, and we achieve this many times in counseling. It becomes part of the exploration. Oh, so you, you think you blew it? What do you really think happened? And so then an individual can talk about what they think went on. And we have watched powerful stories of restoration over the years where somebody came to terms with what they had done and they simply were open and willing and we see how God brings restoration and that's how the church ought to be. This is what allows the church the resilience that's there down sometimes but never staying there because we get up and go. We may be down, but not out. It's because we take charge of our issues and we are able to say, Lord, sorry. We're so sorry that this is what happened. But before God, when you are that honest with yourself and the things that you have done, God sends his forgiveness, allows you to experience his hand of mercy. Ah, may that be your portion today in Jesus' name. You may be here today and you may, never know, you may not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe somebody has tried to talk to you about your life 
And you keep saying, no, I'm not this, no. Amy, I can't come to church because there are too many hypocrites. And some people make those excuses. No, they are this, they are that. Don't make excuses. How about your own life? God loves you. And if you come in humility and honesty about what you have done and what you have failed to do, and you come before God in repentance, God will forgive you. And I'm inviting, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, to make this the day that you open your heart to him, repent of your sins, and turn around. He's able. But let's, let's read more from the psalmist here, and I'll be, making my, I'll be leading you to my last point shortly. He says, when I kept silent, meaning when I didn't really even voice out to anyone, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then, church, are you following me? Then I acknowledged my sin to you. Hey, this is personal responsibility. This is honesty before God. And when one is honest before God, it's easier to be honest before men and women. Hallelujah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. There are times that you've done something wrong and you want to tell stories. No, 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 don't go there. Sons and daughters, don't go there. The body of Christ is here for you. And granted, sometimes we've not had the best of atmospheres. That's why I'm teaching on this. So that in the church, we can create an atmosphere where the least of us, if ever caught up in an error or in a sin, can feel that they don't have to run anywhere else. They have people, they have brothers and sisters to whom they can turn before whom they can confess. And in the context of that, we can read James, where James says, confess your sins one to another. Confess your thoughts one to another that you may be healed. It begins here. Then I acknowledge my sin to you and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to you, O Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sila, something to think about very deeply. Read on with me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. Then look at verse 7. He says, you, O God. There's a song that is sung by the church from this verse. You are my hiding place. Hallelujah. Sometimes people have felt, after sinning, they felt like, ah, it's better for me to go and hide in the bar. It's better for me to go deeper into sin. And sometimes it's the atmosphere we create around the church that forces people to go into those kinds of areas. No excuse for them though, but we must create an atmosphere as God's people where the least of us, whenever taken into a sin or a wrong, can feel that they have a home, they have a place, they have brothers, they have sisters. And that brother, that sister is you. Somebody shout hallelujah. Shout hallelujah. You are my hiding place. And you will protect me from trouble. And surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, verse 8 is a very popular verse. But it comes now in the context where God is in one sense, responding to a broken, honest, and contrite heart. And he says, I will instruct you in the way you must go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know how when you've wronged somebody, you don't want to see them and you want to keep hiding. Oh, sometimes it's when people owe money and you want to keep running away from people you owe money and so on. No need. You need to face things as they are. Walk up to somebody and say, look, I, I have a problem. Are you hearing me? So God, God in verse 8 shows that when there is contrition, when there is honesty, when there is humility before him, that's a sign of a desire for true repentance. He responds immediately and he says, I, your father, will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. I will counsel you. And watch over you. But look at verse number nine. 
He cautions, do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding that must be controlled by bit or bridle. You see? They have to put a bridle or they will not come to you. He says, don't be like that. Where you literally have to have things to gag you, to keep you in line. No, 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 no. In church, we have no, this is not a place for rules and regulations. One, two, three, up to 20. Thou shalt, thou shalt, no, thou shalt, no, thou shalt, no. No, no, no. Christianity is not about thou shalt not. Christianity is about what we are called to do, in to leave, that is to live in righteousness and in holiness before the Lord. You shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy. Is this making sense to you? Lift up one hand and shout, praise the Lord. I know we quote verse 8, but usually we don't understand the context. The context is that God is seeing a heart of humility and honesty. Contrition is at the center. And this is why a broken and contrite spirit, broken and contrite heart, God will not turn away. Somebody shout hallelujah. Let's read on. Verse 10 and 11. Many are the wars of the wicked. Many are the afflictions of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love, again, now you know what that is. Unfailing love is the same as mercy, the same as compassion. So that's picked up. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Then he says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And so, Worship is underpinned and undergirded by this kind of heart. And when you have this kind of heart, there'll be songs of joy, songs of worship. They draw, they, they literally ooze out of a heart that is humble and honest. And that should be the atmosphere of worship in the church. Worship is not that thing we hype by, you know, saying, okay, we're now on song number three, so we should be in gear, chakuti. Uh-uh. It's not about how many songs and how we line them up. It's about creating room for the heart to just let itself open and humble before the Lord. And every single Christian believer, son, daughter of the Lord coming in humility and laying their hearts before the Lord. And in that atmosphere, God the Holy Spirit comes and begins to touch hearts. It's not an atmosphere, an atmosphere we cook up or make up. It's an atmosphere that the Holy Spirit himself creates because he's responding to the hearts of people. He sees in the hearts of people their yearning, their desire. And then this is where the psalmist says, one thing I have desired of thee, one thing I will seek after, to dwell in the presence of the Lord and to gaze. Gaze at the Lord. So this is the best approach for handling the challenge of rumors, which are the devil's schemes. I want us to read two passages before we go to the last item here. Second Corinthians chapter two. In Second Corinthians chapter two. Bible says in verse number 11, okay, it's out there. So he says that we're not ignorant of the devils in order that, this, that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. So while the church is abiding, you must remember we have an enemy, the devil. The devil rejoices when, when anything goes wrong, when a believer goes wrong or somebody falls in sin, the enemy rejoices. He's very, very happy. So you don't join that party. You don't join the enemy's party. You don't join that convoy. You have a convoy of believers that you must be part of, but you must be aware of the schemes of the enemy. The enemy targets people. Your own brothers and sisters are targeted and they must have a protection from you. Are we together, beloved? So let me show you what happens. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we see a clear example of how the enemy works. 
Sanballat, Tobiah, and the whole team represent how the enemy works. So in verse number two, Sanballat of Nehemiah 6, Sanballat and, and uh, Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of um, Ono. So this message is sent to Nehemiah. Nehemiah represents God's people in this particular sense. But they were scheming to harm me. And remember the Lord says, I know the plans, Jeremiah 29, that I have for you. Plans to give you a future, not to harm you. And we also know from the Paul's writing to the Corinthians that God will allow sometimes for you to face a number of diverse trials and even temptations, but that there is no temptation that has come to you which is uncommon, Paul says. And that in every set of that circumstance, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. So anything that's allowed means that you have the capacity to conquer. But in that arrangement, the enemy is also lurking and looking around. And sometimes your own brothers and sisters are caught up in that scheme. Don't join, I said, the convoy of the enemy. Instead, work towards rescuing your brothers and sisters. I said, work towards rescuing your brothers and sisters. Somebody shout hallelujah. So there are schemes. And so Nehemiah answers, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a project here that cannot go down. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? So I want you to know. And then it says in there four times, five times, Sanballat and Geshem continued to push, try and woo Nehemiah. The devil doesn't stop. And they want you to keep this in mind. And when there are circumstances of ailment and, uh, or, or failure or sin or error, anywhere in the body of Christ, the enemy keeps hitting, hitting, hitting. And when people are not aware, a situation that was bad can become worse. And you don't want that. So let me show you what, is, what, what else they do. Verse 5. Then the fifth time, St. Balat sent his aid. Now he sends his actual aid to me with the same message. In his hand. And it was unsealed in, in an unsealed letter in which it was written, it is reported among the nations. So this is Sanballat saying to Nehemiah, it is reported. That's rumor mongering. Can you see that? That's rumor mongering. So usually in the church when these things are happening, you say, have you heard? Did you hear? It is reported. You're not a news carrier. You're not a journalist. You're a Christian. But this is, I want you to see how deep this is. These schemes have been used by the enemy from time immemorial. So he tries to trap Nehemiah. He says, it's reported among you. And he says, in fact, this is what you've done, Nehemiah. You've gathered for yourself a group of people. You've even hired a prophet. And he said all kinds of things as though the, the real king will hear because you are now setting up another kingdom around. And Nehemiah simply says, when you say it is, it is reported, it's the, it's the same rumor mongering. And we, we must deal with that in Jesus' name. Verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up in your head. So in this day, we are living in a day, beloved, where people make up stories. They will create stories about you, about the church, and about many things, even in the country right now, today. This is how people destroy nations. There are times that people create stories around an economy, around a nation, and sometimes that thing has Telling devastating effect and people don't realize it. Stuff that they make up. And in this day of social media, I must counsel you to learn to deal with facts. Deal with truth. Not rumor. Rumor destroys. Facts help to build the body. Truth cements and consolidates the work of God. Hallelujah. So, I've taken time today to commence a teaching around how we handle issues of church discipline in the church. How we handle issues of repentance and forgiveness.
What I'm giving is a biblical guideline. And this issue we've just dealt with here, that is bent on spreading dishonesty, is the issue of rumor mongering. And the cure and panacea for that is for you to be honest with yourself before God, to be honest with your brothers and sisters. And as you deal with yourself honestly, God's mercy comes and is poured out on you. And there's healing in the house. Somebody shout hallelujah. So that leads me to my last point. My last point for today in this teaching, only halfway, is that true repentance is curative. There is healing. There is a cure that comes when there is true repentance. Curative in the sense that the person that is experiencing that, 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 that the issue of sin begins to get healing. And I know I've used the term cure there. And, and it's not like you now become immune to sin. But cure because cure is about bringing a remedy where there was a wrong. It's about bringing healing where there have been wounds. Cure is about dealing with something so that hopefully it doesn't happen again. So you can move on to something else. Are we together? So let me quote from another penitential psalm. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, as we wrap it up on that point. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee. I've memorized this from the New King James Version. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Hallelujah. Beloved, this is where the church must abide. To understand God's forgiveness, when it works for us, we will also channel Forgiveness to one another. People who struggle with forgiving others have never understood the forgiveness of God. Because if you understand God's forgiveness over you, who are you to hold something against somebody for life? Who are you? Where would you be if God held that against you? You wouldn't survive. I wouldn't survive. But God, the word here says, if you or God would mark iniquity, if God would keep every sin you have committed, yebo, 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 ayebo. If God would mark iniquity, he's saying, oh Lord, who would stand? But, praise God, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. To whom much is given, much is expected. We have been forgiven. You remember the case of Mary Magdalene? You remember the case of John chapter 8? The people who wanted to pick up stones. And when Jesus just wrote on the ground and said, okay, let me start recording your sins one by one. Each one, it, it is... It is, it is said that what may have happened, and this is, of course, imagination, that... Those people, those religious people, we are seeing each of one. As soon as they saw their sin written on the ground, they walked away. They saw their sin, they walked away. Because everybody there was a sinner. And Jesus said, let one of you, whoever has never sinned, let be the first one to pick up a stone. If your God would mark iniquity, Lord, who would stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So we need to employ true repentance, genuine repentance. Because when there's genuine repentance, there's a cure. It's curative. There's healing. It's healing. And when you experience healing, you want to share healing with someone else. When you've been forgiven, you want to forgive as well. And the next Sunday, uh, hopefully I'll finish it. If I don't, I'll push it to the next Sunday. I want to take time to teach and help us as a church to know how to handle one another. May God bless us.
He who is sitting on the throne is a caring God. He loves you and I. He walked the dusty roads of Jericho and Jerusalem in order to make sure that you and I would receive mercy. And because of his great love and mercy, what was supposed to happen for you and I did not have to happen. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. So we can say together with the psalmist in verse 9, 10, and 11, in Psalm 51, we can say together with the psalmist, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Take not away your Holy Spirit or renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. This is where we sing that song. May that be your portion today. And may that be our experience, church. This year is about harvest retention. We return the harvest when we are allowing God to work through us in this fashion. And we'll come back to the study. May God bless you and cover you and protect you. May he lead you to that place of true repentance and forgiveness.